Let's pray. Father God, we come before you knowing that, uh, that you care and that you love us. Um, and I just ask that as we open your word, uh, that we would sense that care and that love, that you would come through uh, your word in such a way that each of our hearts would hear what we most need to hear today in this moment. Father, you know all the stuff we're going through. You know uh, what the last several weeks, the last couple months have been like. You know the struggles. You know the pain. You know the doubts and the fears. You know it all. So, Father, would you come by your Spirit and speak to us? Father, I think it's crazy that I get to do this work. I thank you for it. I surrender myself to you. I surrender my thoughts and my words, the things I've studied and prepared. I give it all to you to be used however you so choose. But please, Father, by your spirit, come and speak to us, your children. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're here. We're here at the very end of this letter uh, to the church written by John. John, an old disciple disciple who who started following Jesus when he was a teenager. And now he's an old man. He's lived most of his life. He's seen uh, so many of his friends, his fellow disciples, suffer and martyred for the sake of Christ. Uh, He knows his time's coming, uh, and he writes this one final letter to us. And so what is it? What is it that he most wants to say to us? What is it that he wants to leave behind as his legacy? Well, I think throughout the entire letter, but especially as we, as we come to the end of the letter, we see he really wants us to know Jesus. And, and not just know Jesus, but he wants us to know that we know Jesus. Because he knows that knowing Jesus is a matter of life and death. In fact, one of the very last things he writes, he says uh, in, in 1 John 5, starting in verse 11, he says, And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. John knows that that how we answer that question, how we respond to that testimony, is the most crucial decision that we'll ever make. And it's only a yes or no. There's no C option. Like you have to say yes or no to that testimony that, that God sent his son, that Jesus Christ is the son of God and it's through him we have eternal life. There's no maybe. It's like if I were to ask you if you're married, you could say yes or you could say no. You're not gonna say, I'm not sure, right? It's a yes or no answer. John, at the end of his letter, gets so direct with us because he desperately wants us to know uh, this, this Jesus who has transformed his life, who he spent the last 60, 70 years of his life following and serving. So how do you answer that question? Do you accept that Jesus is in fact the Son of God and do you trust him for the forgiveness of your sins and your salvation. John says it's a matter of life and death how you answer that question. Either you have life or you have death. John clearly states throughout the letter that if you do not have Jesus, however full your life may seem, it's not everlasting. Either the path you are on is is a path that leads ultimately to death, so eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, or 
you're on a path that leads to life everlasting. And y'all, when he talks about eternal life, it's not some kind of, you know, future thing only. Eternal life's not just about what will one day happen. Eternal life is as much about what will one day happen as what's happening right now. Eternal life's about living in light of who we truly are, who God had in mind when he thought us up. Jesus said uh, when he came to earth, he said, I've come so that you may have life and life abundantly. And he, he didn't mean just after you die. He means now that there's an abundant life now. And so as John gets to the end of this letter, he wants us to wrestle with the question, do we believe in Jesus? Because it's a matter of life and death. Now, I know some of you um, haven't, haven't decided yet what you think about that. Um, and maybe um, you still need some time to think through and wrestle with some doubts or questions that you have. Um, and, you know, you need to keep examining the evidence, which is what we talked about the very first week uh, we started looking at this letter on Easter, that we need to go back and examine the evidence. And that's great. If that's you, if you're still in that place, keep asking questions. And and I hope you'll reach out to me or one of the other pastors or a friend who's a Christian. We would love to kind of hear your questions and process through them, uh, even if it's about the dinosaurs. So, uh, so keep asking your questions. Take as long as you need, uh, but don't take any more time than is necessary because John makes it clear, knowing Jesus is a matter of life and death. But my guess is some of you already believe you just don't know it. I have a friend who, uh, she met with me several times because she had lots of questions and, um, and she had lots of hurt uh, because of religious people and the church. And, um, and so she was really wrestling with whether or not she could believe this. But every time we would meet and we would go through the questions that she had, it became so clear to me, she already believed. She already knew. And so finally, I just said to her, you already believe. You, 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 you're, already, you're already there. Um, you know, you're just asking the same questions that any thoughtful Christian still ask. Um, so maybe that's you. Maybe, maybe you've, you've never actually made that choice because you don't know how. But I'm going to tell you today how. If you believe, I'm going to tell you what you need to do. Now, I know most uh, of us watching, um, you made the choice a long time ago, like I made the choice a long time ago. You, you believe this stuff. You believe that Jesus is who he says he is. Uh, but that doesn't mean that there's nothing in this for you. Because again, John is writing to the church, which is mostly people who already believe, people who know Jesus. And he's writing to the church because he wants to make sure that they know that they know Jesus. In fact, in, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, he says, I write these things to those of you who believe in the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So no matter where you are at this moment, I really believe God has something specific to say to you. So with that, let's look at our text for today. We're in 1 John. I'm going to start reading uh, in chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? 
only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is God's word. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. John talks a lot in this letter and also in his gospel about being born of God or born again. Now, for those of us who grew up in the church, it's a pretty familiar term to be, to be born again. That you know, We don't even probably think about it when it's said, but, but really, it's odd, right? I mean, it's, 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 it's an odd expression to be born again, to be born of God. I, I don't know about you, but I can't say born again without in the back of my mind hearing you know, a, a little old lady with a Southern accent or, or, or Leslie Jordan saying, yeah, he's a good born again Christian, right? Like, like we all have some connotation with that term. It's, a, it's an odd term. And when it first appears, when John first brings it up, it's in his gospel, in, in John chapter 3, uh, John recounts this interaction between Jesus and this religious man, this Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus was a prominent leader in, in their society. Uh, he was a very educated man. He had lots of wealth. Um, but he, he watches Jesus come on the scene, and he sees the way Jesus teaches people, and he sees the way he loves people, and it, it interests him. And he wants to know more. And so under the cover of night, because he didn't want his other fellow religious leaders to know he was talking to this kind of uh, renegade uh, preacher man, uh, he calls Jesus into his house. And he says, listen, I've been watching you and I'm fascinated by you. I've never heard anyone teach the way you teach. I've, I've never seen anyone love the way you love. I, I really, I want to know you. I want to know more about you. And you know what Jesus's response to him? to this very educated, this very prominent man. He looks at him and he says, you must first be born again. That's so odd, right? Like, can you imagine the look on his face when he heard this? He had to have been thinking, what? You're crazy. Like, what does that even mean? And remember, Nicodemus was a religious man. So his whole life was about doing the right thing. It was about staying within this kind of religious structure. It was about studying God's word and, and being able to teach other people God's word and to obey God's word. So this very religious man comes to, to Jesus and he says, hey, I want to learn from you. I want to know more from you. And Jesus just says to him, you got to be born again. That's so weird. Well, why, why is that? What, what, what does that even mean? Well, I think Jesus is looking at Nicodemus and he's saying, if you want to learn anything from me, if you want me to have any kind of impact on your life, I, I can't just be your teacher. I can't just be your example. You have to be born again. You have to be made new. Every single one of us has to be born again. Why? Because when Jesus came, he didn't come to, to offer us a, a new self-improvement program. He didn't come to start a new religion. He came to make everything new. It's not just about you and I turning over a new leaf. It's not just about you and I getting control in one area of our life or being more obedient in this area of our life. It's about a whole revolution inside of us. It's about being made completely new. So in order for you and I, for us to really be born again, for us to accept this testimony that John has laid before us, we have to first accept that we have to be born again, that we don't just need a self-help program, that we don't just need another religion, that you and I don't just need a fresh start. We need to be made new. So then how do we know? How do we know that we really know? 
how do we know that we really know Jesus? How do we know that we really are born again? Well, we've been saying throughout this entire series that John gives us kind of three tests to be able to assure us that we actually are born again, that we actually are Christians, that we actually know. We said there's a theological test uh, that we can kind of examine. Do we believe the right things? Do we actually believe that Jesus is the Son of God? And do we believe that he died for our sins and that he resurrected from the dead? Can we pass that test? Then we looked at what it means to kind of test ourselves morally. And Kaylee kind of led us through this discussion. What does our, what does our life look like now? Do we, do we keep sinning in all the same ways or is, has there been a change? Has there been a change? Maybe even the behavior will take longer to change, but, but has there been a change in, in our desires, like what we want to do? Do we want to do the right thing? And then Gary led us through what it means uh, to kind of examine ourselves through the social test. How do we love others? So we've been going through these three tests to kind of be able to examine, like, where am I? How am I doing? Am, am I really a true Christian? Because the outward marks of a Christian— of someone who is born again is that they believe Jesus is the Messiah, that they obey God's commands, and that they love and serve others. So we've been examining that. We, we've looked for those marks in our own lives. But something hit me this week as I was studying this kind of last little bit of John's letter. Uh, it, it kind of surprised me. It kind of threw me for a loop. Um, and it was verse 3. Let me, let me read verse 3 again. So this is 1 John 5, verse 3. He says, In fact, this is love for God, to keep His commands, and His commands are not burdensome. It's almost as if John has set a trap for us. It's almost as if he's allowed us to kind of go through this letter, kind of go through these tests, and maybe maybe we feel good about ourselves. Maybe, yep, check the theological test, got that one right. Morally, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm better than other people. Check. Um, I, I, I Do I love and serve others? I didn't I serve this week. Great, check. And then bam, verse 3. His commands are not burdensome. Y'all, they are. <laughs> Aren't they? Don't you, at least some of the time, don't you feel like obeying God, the things that God asks of us are burdensome? That's what's hit me all week is all of a sudden I realized I got to this place and I was like, man, do I, do I think that? Do I really believe that his law, that his commands are not burdensome? So that's what I kind of have been wrestling with all week. And I came up with two reasons why, why they're still burdensome to me. One is that I'm still living like I need to earn it. And two, um, I don't really believe that they're for my good. So let's talk about that. Um, it reminds me a lot of the older brother in the prodigal son. Um, and if you don't know that story, maybe you're one of the people who's just kind of examining this Christianity thing. Um, go to Luke 15 and read the story of the prodigal son uh, because you'll really see the heart of God in that story. It's one of... Uh, it's my favorite story that Jesus ever told. Uh, but in this story, there's two brothers. One brother goes, goes away with his inheritance early, and he squanders it in wild living. He comes home. Um, instead of the father being angry when he sees him, he greets him with a hug and a kiss. He, he throws a huge party for him. But then there's this other, this other brother, the older brother, who stayed home the whole time. He's kept working for the father, even while his younger brother is out sowing his wild oats. And, uh, and when he hears the party that's being thrown for this mischievous, bad younger brother, 
he comes to the Father and he says to the Father, look you, all these years I've been slaving for you. All these years I've been working for you. I never once disobeyed you. See, older brothers obey. Older brothers pray. Older brothers read their Bibles. They do the right things. They serve at nice serve. Older brothers would probably go through those three tests and pass with flying colors in their own minds. But here's where John gets them. When he says, but God's laws are not burdensome. See, for an older brother, they'll do all the right things, but it's a burden. There's no delight in it. There's no joy in it. Do you delight in God's law? The very beginning of Psalms, Psalms begins, and we're going to spend the summer looking and studying uh, Psalms, uh, but the very first Psalm, it begins with these words, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of God, and on it he meditates both day and night. Do you do that? Do you meditate? Do you delight in God's law? Do you see it as, as, as something that brings you great joy? Or are, you like, are you like an older brother? You're faithful, you're diligent, you care for the poor, you do all the things, but there's no delight. It's a burden. It's all about the results. It's about obeying God to get things from Him. If you want to test yourself in, in this, the, the easiest way to test yourself in this is to examine your prayer life. First of all, do you pray? Um, and then when you pray, what do you pray for? Is it mostly petitions? Is it mostly you asking for God to give you things, to show up for certain things, um, maybe with some you know, confession of sin? Is that what you spend most of your time in? Or do you spend a good amount of time? Do you waste time just praising God, just adoring Him, just being uh, enamored with His beauty and His character, with the, with the beauty of His law. Now, I know that can seem abstract, right? I know for some of us, we're like, well, I don't, I don't even, who does that? Like, what, what, what does that even mean to do that? Well, my friend uh, Kaylee, uh, she, uh, she has a really good way of, of describing what she thinks it means to delight in God and His law. Um, and she calls it, it's like, it's like Facebook stalking. Um, and she talks about how when she first started falling in love with her husband, Rob, uh, she would Facebook stalk him because she wanted to know everything about him. She wanted to know what music he liked, to see if she liked the same music. She wanted to know his hobbies. She wanted to know the things that, that made his heart beat faster. She, she was fascinated by him. She wanted to learn as much about him as she could. Is that how you are with God? When you go to God in prayer, is it, are, you on your, are you on a search to kind of understand Him, to know and to see His heart? Or do you just want stuff from Him? Do you pray to get things from God or do you pray to get God? The older brother comes to his father and, and he essentially says to his father, I've been obeying you and it's got me nothing. Which essentially is being with you, that's not enough. Being your son, that's not enough. So yes, he obeyed, he followed the law, but not without breaking his father's heart. He's essentially saying, I don't want you. If obedience means that I get to be with you, so what? I just want your stuff. If you and I, if we obey, if we do all these things out of obligation and not delight, that means that you and I, we're doing them out of fear, 
or we're doing them thinking that we must be missing out on something, that we're sacrificing something that's better, which really gets to the second thing. So the reason God's law is burdensome for me is that I still live like I, I've got to earn it, and so whatever I do good means I deserve a reward, or I don't think they're really for my good. And that really gets back to the very first lie. The very beginning of this story, that's the lie. That's the lie that Satan told Adam and Eve. The lie was, God doesn't want what's best for you. God's a withholding God. He's a cosmic killjoy. You shouldn't trust him. he's He's not got your best in mind. And it's that lie that you and I have been struggling with for the rest of our lives. I love how it's put in the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's so simple. I just want to read it to you. Um, It says this, Eve, Eve picked the fruit and ate some, and Adam ate some too. And a terrible lie came into the world. It would never leave. It would live on in every human heart, whispering to every one of God's children, God doesn't love me. That's the lie. That's the same lie that you and I struggle with. But it's not true. God has our best in mind. Do you believe that? Do you believe that that you have a God who no matter what, always has your best in mind? To be born again means that you believe not only that God is good, but that he has good for you. God's commands become way less burdensome when we realize they're not arbitrary, when he didn't just make them up, that he's not just this cosmic killjoy, that in fact, rightly understood, they're they're a manual for how life works best. If you and I, if we want to live life and live it to the full, if, if you and I want to have an abundant life, we live by the way God designed us. And also, God's law is all a reflection of His character. So you and I, as we live out those laws, we're reflecting Him. We're looking a lot more like what He had in mind when He thought us up. But if you and I, if we obey God's commands because we fear we'll be rejected, because we're scared of punishment, because we're fearful that if we don't obey, He'll stop loving us, then our, then our obedience is very burdensome indeed. I think the most despairing moment that I've ever witnessed in a movie, ever, um, is at the end of Saving Private Ryan. And I, don't, I don't know if you've seen the movie, but it's a fictional story a set in World War II where this uh, group of soldiers goes out to find this one soldier, Ryan, uh, to bring him back home safely. Ryan had brothers. They all died in the war. Um, and so they didn't, they didn't want another, uh, they didn't want the only surviving son of this family uh, to also die. So they sent all these soldiers in to get him. Um, and along the way, many of those soldiers that went to save him lost their lives. And in fact, the captain who was leading the troops, when they finally make it to Ryan, he's fatally wounded um, and he grabs hold of Ryan And he says to him, earn this. That's his last words. Earn this. And the movie ends with Ryan, now an old man, much like John when he writes this letter, an old man. uh, And he's got his family with him. And he's standing there at the grave of that captain, Captain John H. Miller. 
Um, and he stands before the grave and he says, every day, every day I've thought about what you said to me. And then his wife comes up and he turns to her and, and with tears in his eyes, he's pleading with her and he says, tell me I've lived a good life. Tell me I'm a good man. Now, for some of you, you got to the end of that movie and you thought, what an inspiring moment. But I was like, what? Are you crazy? What, what kind of life would you have to live in order uh, to make it worth the death of so many soldiers? What a burden to carry your whole life the words, earn this. But this week, as I wrestled with that verse 3 and God's law being burdensome, um, I realized that I live most of my life still thinking like Jesus' dying words to me were, earn this. But what had John heard? We know that John was there. He was there at the foot of the cross when Jesus died. John heard Jesus' dying words to him and to us. It is finished. To be born again means our motivation has been made new. You and I, we don't have to run around trying to earn it. We're already accepted. Accepted-centered obedience comes from knowing we've already been accepted. We don't obey to get accepted. We're ex we, we, we obey because we're accepted. We obey because God loves us, not to get Him to love us. You and I, we obey not out of fear of what will happen to us. We obey out of gratitude for what has been done to us. So what now? What do you, what do you have to do to be born again? You don't have to do anything. You just have to accept what's been done for you. One of the reasons I was most excited about doing this study in 1 John um, was because uh, the misquoting of 1 John is what sent me into a tailspin of doubt and depression about 10 years ago. Um, I, there was a book that everyone was reading. It was like the, you know, every Christian small group, every church was like peddling this one book that was supposed to be, that was marketed, that it was all about how, how God is crazy in love with you. Now, I'm not going to mention the title of the book, but it's a book about love that is crazy. And, um, and throughout the book, this author goes to 1 John and just misquotes it again and again and again to the point where I had to stop reading the book because I just thought, well, if this is what it means to be born again, to be a born again Christian, I'm out. I failed and I'll keep failing and I know that I'll never measure up. And one of the one of the the, the misquotes of First John that really I mean that really kind of sent me into the deepest darkest despair uh, was First John three nineteen, and First John three nineteen says this: This is how we know that we belong to the truth, and we set our hearts at rest in His presence. Um, and and this author used that quote after he went through this list of all the things that you and I should be doing as Christians. Um, all this list of like what it means to be a Christian, to love other people, to serve, like all these things that you and I, to not be sinning, all these things we should be doing. And then he put that quote 
and he and he used a period at the end of it. Um, and so it was like, oh my gosh, if that's how I put my heart at rest, I'll never, my heart will never be at rest. But if I had just gone to my Bible and I had just opened it and I had just read 1 John 3, 19 in context, I would have seen that there's not a period at the end of that sentence. That in fact, there's a semicolon. And 1 John 3, 20 says this, if our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. God knew I would fail. God knew all the times I would fail. He knew that I would not be able to pass those three tests every time perfectly. He knew that I would struggle with doubts and insecurity. He knew that I would struggle with sin again and again and again. So on the cross, Jesus proved that he was greater than our hearts when he said, it is finished. When Jesus said, it is finished, he forever obliterated the lie earn this. So, do you believe? If you do, it's the most freeing thing.